listening to Radio Tedland. Heading Nowhere, written by Patrick Cullen. Chapter 3. Observe but do not follow. I'd bought a couple of bottles of vodka before getting to the ferry terminal and started drinking when I got on board. We sailed late in the afternoon, and the journey to the birthplace of Aphrodite passed like any other night, a forgettably loveless alcoholic haze. I'd passed out and slept on the deck, before being woken by the activity of fellow passengers in the morning as the ferry sailed into Limassol. I had no plans as such, other than trying not to get drunk, but I had very little money either. Enough to pay for a couple of nights at a cheap hotel or hostel, but not enough to afford a ticket off the island, once I was on it. I thought that wherever I found to sleep would also be a good place to find some work. I had a blanket I'd managed to put over myself before crashing, and having packed it away in my small rucksack, I disembarked. When I'd cleared customs, I saw a couple of runners. They lived by trying to convince travellers to stay at their cheap hotel or hostel, sometimes earning a small commission, but more often doing the job in exchange for free board. It wasn't difficult as such, but like anything, when you know your day-to-day -day survival is dependent on doing your job well, it can put you under a certain pressure. I found a hotel that seemed like it could satisfy my needs. It was cheap and sounded like a good place to get work, so I got a bus the short distance into town. On the way, I was struck by how like England Cyprus seemed. I'd moved around a lot as a child, but England was the place I'd spent most time growing up, even if those years encompassed a multitude of different addresses. The hotel was easy enough to find and seemed okay, even though, like so much else in life, it had known better days, and was now doing the best it could to survive, and somehow make it through more or less intact to whatever end might await. What had once been a fair-sized single room was now a dormitory that slept six, one of them me, but I was used to worse, and there was a balcony with a view of the street below. Nothing special, but nothing wrong with it either. I was sharing the room with three Brits, a Colombian and a Lebanese Arab, and the Brits filled me in on the work situation. The old man who worked the reception, a bearded Greek Cypriot called Socrates, was the man to talk with, apparently. I was a little disconcerted to see the Brits sitting around drinking vodka, and when joining them and asking about the price, found out the main difference between Israel and Cyprus was that here there wasn't just cheap vodka, but also cheap whiskey, rum and brandy too. Oh well, the best laid plans of mice and men, and such forth. I went out and found Socrates and let him know I was looking for work. He seemed pretty certain he'd be able to find me something, especially when I let him know I didn't really care what it was. As long as it was paid, I just needed the money. I fell in with the lads in my room. The Brits were part of a bigger group of Brits and Irish at the hotel, and the Colombian guy was accepted for a combination of reasons the ability to tell seemingly endless stories about his decidedly brutal sexual exploits, the general awe and slight fear Colombians often are met with. Who knows if they're part of some violent drug cartel? As well as his unflinchingly regular breakfast of orange juice and raw eggs. The Arab was not accepted, though, hardly even tolerated, his asking one Saturday morning how much money we, like him, were sending home to our families when we were on our way to the beach to get drunk underlining the cultural differences between us, the resultant condescending laughter his question received proof of an unwillingness to bridge that divide. Socrates turned out to be good at finding work. 
Obviously, it was in his interest that those staying at the hotel had the money to pay the rent, but maybe he also got some commission or finder's fee from the prospective employers. Then again, there were that many of us looking for work. It could hardly have been difficult for anyone wanting a pair of cheaply paid hands for a day or two's work to find us. I had a variety of jobs for a day or so, earning enough money to stay at the hotel, as well as eat and drink, and still managing to put a little bit aside to afford a ticket off the island at some point. A lot of the work I got had to do with loading and unloading containers. Shady characters in sunglasses would turn up at the hotel needing three or four men for some hours' work urgently, and we would be taken to a container somewhere around the town and put to work. Once I helped unload a container filled with barrels of motor oil, horribly taxing work in the heat. Another time, and this was in the days before Cyprus joined the European Union, a container with blankets had to be unloaded. The blankets were in see-through plastic packaging and had been made in Romania. Once we'd taken the blankets out of the container, we had to put a sticker on the plastic packaging, stating that the blankets were made in the EU, following which we loaded them onto the container again. I also did some gardening, sweeping the driveway of a villa up in the mountains inland from Limassol. This was a job I enjoyed, as it was much cooler in the mountains than at the coast. Another job was helping with the grape harvest. This was incredibly hard work. I was not actually picking the grapes, rather carrying the filled baskets and buckets to a tractor and trailer and unloading them before going back for more. The ones doing the picking were mainly old ladies. I imagined they'd been doing the work for years and had long ago developed the perfect technique for picking as many grapes as possible in the least amount of time. On top of this, the grapes were very large, making it easier for the women to fill the baskets quicker. The highlight of the day, though, was the food we were given, traditional Greek Cypriot fare, and lots of it. On the whole, I found working on Cyprus more taxing than working in Israel. In Tel Aviv, I usually had to argue a bit to get the money I'd been promised, but when I did so, I got not just the wages I'd been promised, but also the respect of my employer. There was a certain basic respect that didn't seem there with the Cypriots. We were just hands to do work, and there were plenty others where we came from, if we were unsatisfied. Perhaps the reason for this slightly warmer treatment from the Israelis had less to do with what we were, and more with what we weren't. Arabs. There had been a time when Palestinians could work in construction in Israel with relative ease. That time had gone though, and the wages I, as unskilled labor had got, were three times what would have been paid to qualified Palestinian workers. For the most part though, my time on Cyprus centered on the hotel, drinking with the others, with occasional visits to the pier, where we also drank. The we in question were typically British and Irish. There were some Americans, South Africans, Antipodeans, even a German, who spoke enthusiastically about some Greek island he'd been on, where he'd spent an evening jumping over a bonfire shouting Shiva, as loudly and madly as only an enthusiastic Teuton can, trying perhaps to wake the ghost of Hermann Hesse. For the most part, though, the British and Irish stuck together. At the time, I felt there was something different about us, our attitude, maybe even something you could see in our eyes and definitely made noticeable by our lack of inhibition. We didn't care, for we had no reason to care. Rather, we cared only for the day. The future belonged to others, so that wasn't anything we needed to care for. I felt this difference grew from what we came from, how it affected us, and how others weren't influenced in the same way. 
We had grown up under Thatcher, and it had been drummed into us that there was no such thing as society. Nobody cared for us, so why should we care about ourselves either? The people from Australia or America, they were heading off into the world, taking a year or two out of their life, getting a taste of freedom and adventure and nothing wrong with that. But the plan was, when the travelling was over, they'd be going back. I felt that what connected me with the British and Irish was that we weren't going back, we had nowhere and nothing to go back to. And a great number of us, including myself, seemed to have no destination, no place or hope or dream we were travelling towards. We were simply travelling from and getting away, heading nowhere, and knowing only that we wouldn't go back. So we warmed our lost souls with cheap spirits, sat in circles on beds in dormitories and drank, sat at the end of a falling down pier, stared at the sea, and drank. We were lost, and we didn't care. We had no hope of being found, but neither were we looking to hide. There was nothing, no point to anything, but we didn't care, and the booze was cheap. There was an Englishman living in an apartment in Limassol who used to drink with us. He had a young daughter staying with him, 16 or 17 years old, and she used to hang around too. The Englishman seemed to be well off without having to work. Some said he'd made some money in property back in England, but nobody really knew anything for sure. Then again, none of us really knew that much about each other, apart from what we said over the course of emptying a bottle or two, and the absence of any form of certainty as to who we were was not felt as a particular hardship. The Englishman with the apartment would get drunk with us, usually down on the pier, but occasionally he'd invite some of us back to where he lived. I only went there once, but I remember it, as it was the first time I really noticed Jim, who was to play a major role in my life. Jim was also English, the son of a doctor who had grown up in some northern city, but he kept himself to himself. He seemed a bit aloof, a bit superior even, but was friendly enough to say hello to. The Englishman's apartment seemed to support the idea of him having money, but gave no obvious clue as to where it might have come from. It was a large place, with a good view and expensive-looking fixtures and fittings. There wasn't that much furniture, though, which meant that we ended up sitting on the marble floor of the living room. We were a group of about ten, passing round bottles and talking. One or two were morose and said very little. A couple talked a lot. But for the most part we all said what we wanted and listened to each other with no great problems. Anyway, conversation was not the important occurrence. We weren't engaged in debate, but in the process of drinking. At some point I noticed Jim was absent, together with the Englishman's daughter. This became a minor subject of conversation amongst us the assumption being that Jim was having sex with her. When, a short while later, it was discovered that the bathroom door was locked, it seemed to confirm this theory. The Englishman took part in the speculation as to where his daughter might be and what she might be up to. But again, the process of drinking far outweighed any protective responsibility he might have felt as a father, had he been so inclined. The conversation moved on, and the bottles made their way around. And some time later, Jim reappeared together with the Englishman's daughter. They were both smiling, though if Jim's smile seemed a bit practiced and superficial, the daughter's was somewhat more uncertain, as though it were something she hadn't really tried before. Jim had long hair tied back in a ponytail and wild eyes when he'd been drinking. They were wild now, as he began to tell of what they'd been doing. Jim had sodomized the daughter and began talking about the experience in quite specific detail. 
This was of particular interest to Martin, the Colombian. He was, according to himself, a bit of a boxer, and he certainly looked the part, and liked to start each day with a raw egg broken into a glass of orange juice. Other than that, though, his main subject of conversation was a fetish for anal sex, so he had a number of questions for Jim, asked whilst he looked hungrily at the daughter. I followed the conversation and kept on looking at the girl's father, thinking there might be a reaction at some point, but it never came. He just sat there with a stupefied smile on his face, drank when the bottle came his way, and laughed at what others laughed at. If anything, it almost seemed there was a slight element of pride to be seen on his face, that his daughter, whose looks were on the average side of plain, could be an object of desire for grown men. One other thing I noticed while observing the conversation was the manner in which Jim's eyes seemed to grow in intensity as the story unfolded, as though there were some form of life inside him that fed on the corruption and degeneration he caused. Nothing more happened that night, not that I remember. It wouldn't surprise me were Martin to have followed the path so brazenly taken by Jim, but I don't know. At some point I either blacked out or passed out, and it's so long ago now, I can't remember if I awoke on the cold, hard marble of the apartment floor or the thin, hard mattress at Socrates' hotel. I was getting restless on Cyprus. Life there was okay, but it was okay in the same way that life in Tel Aviv had been okay, and that was an okay I'd come to Cyprus in the hope of getting away from. I decided I wanted to leave, to head on back to mainland Europe. The problem was, I didn't have the money for the ferry to Greece. I asked around a bit, and several people said that Jim might be able to help, so I approached him, and he told me his story. Jim, like me, had been living in Tel Aviv until quite recently. He'd been there a few years longer than me, though, and had been living with a Russian woman there. They had a daughter, and though she wasn't his daughter biologically, he treated her as though she were, and she called him dad. Jim said he'd been working as a card dealer in an illegal casino when it was raided by the police. He didn't have a residence permit, and the police weren't sympathetic to his claim of being a parent to a child that wasn't actually his. He was thrown out of the country, and proof of his deportation was stamped in his passport to prevent him coming back again any time soon. It was at this point Jim looked at me, as though noticing my appearance for the first time, and casually remarked that we looked a little like each other. From that point it went quickly, and before long, Jim had told me of a plan whereby he would buy my passport for a sizable sum of money, use it to get back into Israel. Then after a suitable period of time, a couple of months let's say, I could declare it stolen and get a new one. I said I would think about it and get back to him in a day or so. He apparently saw this as a negotiating tactic and offered even more money than at first for my passport, but I held fast in wanting some time to think it over. I've chosen in my life to trust people, to believe what they tell me. Actually, I'm not sure that's quite true but I don't know how to put it. I've chosen to believe people at the same time as being skeptical. I've chosen to give the appearance of believing them, but inwardly have let doubts hold me back. It's difficult for me to express completely and honestly what it is. Perhaps I have chosen to suspend belief while simultaneously believing there were grounds to doubt. Maybe I've dared to trust people, but have been willing to see that trust broken. Is that true though, or just part of the hustle? I act naive and honest and innocent, but that's my trick. Inside I'm a lying, cheating, manipulating hustler, just like all the others. I do what I do to get on and get by, 
and what I do best is to be beatifically good, so good that I challenge the bad in others to do me wrong, and often they don't. I seem simple, it's not fair game, and even amongst thieves there is some form of honor. But even that explanation seems wrong, trying to make some collection of words fit to something that maybe can't even be explained. I talked with Jim again a couple of days later. I won't go into my thoughts before talking with him, because I don't understand them. I do know, though, that the best way to tell a lie is to believe it to be true, 100%, to suspend belief completely, to enclose yourself in a fiction that becomes your one and only reality. I told him that I agreed to let him have my passport. The thing was, though, I told him, I was genuinely moved by his story, and it wouldn't feel right for me to earn money on his misfortune. Therefore, I would let him have my passport, but I refused to let him give me any money for it. He could have it for free, so that I could help him be reunited with his woman and their child. That was my offer, non-negotiable as it were. He seemed surprised more than grateful, and said that now it was his turn to think about it. A week later I talked with him again. I'd been lucky with work, and had pretty much got the money together for a ticket to Piraeus, so I needed to know if he'd be using my passport. He thanked me for the offer, but told me he'd figured out another way of getting back to Israel. I'm not sure, looking back now, I feel as if my way of acting, though not understandable to me, had the effect of bringing out some goodness in people who otherwise seemed lost. Jim, on the other hand, seemed to act in ways that led to the corruption of others, that it wasn't my passport he wanted, but some other part of me that wasn't for sale, even though I might give it away. The next day I was down at the harbour, standing in an unruly line waiting to board the ferry to Greece. I'd had just enough money to pay my bill at the hotel, buy a one-way ticket off the island, and with the small change I had left over, get myself a couple of bottles of vodka. The quayside was quite crowded, a lot of people wanted to get on board, and when it got to be my turn to show my passport, I was able to see the results that came up on the customs officer's computer screen. Observe, but do not follow it said, and I observed him looking at me as I thanked him for returning my passport, and then walked on board the ferry.